You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and today we are going to take a closer look at how we end up deciding who our favorite directors are and how we approach ranking people with completely different styles filmographies, cinematic journeys, and, well, philosophies and approaches to what cinema should even be. I mean, this is not the same as ranking films, where at least there's a single entity. We see it, and it's done. We might have missed something, we might not have been in the right mindset, but at least... For all the different films, styles, and goals out there, we have a kind of one-to-one comparison where we can look at how the film impacted us, how it made us feel, how captivated we were, and how it stayed in our memory. With directors, all that is almost out the window. We are in a situation where we are comparing filmographies of 5 to 10 films to 50 or even 100 We will often not have seen every single film a director has done, and in some cases it's possible we have not even seen the majority. What's more, we don't even necessarily know how integral the director was to each film, nor how much artistic freedom they had, if any. We're in situations where we may be comparing directors for hire, working with highly involved uh, producers and studios, approving every decision, and people who write, cast, direct, shoot, and even edit their own work. So, how do we make sense of it all, and how can we approach actually ranking human beings, or or shall we say their filmographies, talent, uh, or, or effect? Is it a special connection we feel to their work? An appreciation of their style and craft? The number of films they have on our list of favorites? An assessment of their career as a whole? Or could we be going down the relatively breezy route of the average rating? Or maybe all of the above and more. Let's find out and let's see if you, their listener, ranks directors like any of us. Or if you don't uh, rank directors at all, uh, in which case maybe we can share some tips on uh, how to get you started. Our panel for this episode consists of two voices uh, you likely know, my regular co-host Saul and Mathieu, as well as an exciting first-time panelist, uh, Christoph, who has a, shall we say, special interest in ranking directors with a rather extensive personal project that I'm sure we'll dive into and discuss a bit later. So before I bring on the regulars, it's just great to have you here, Christoph. Why don't you just give us a quick introduction of yourselves, our listeners, know where you're coming from. Hello, Chris. I am Christoph and I'm from Germany. I have been watching films for many, many years, for more than two decades, actually. According to Letterboxd, I have locked several thousand films already with a lot of films watched day to day. And the main reason that Saul, with whom I'm going back for many years, back to the IMDb boards days, has asked me to join here for today is that I also have a very large director's league in which I am ranking 
700 directors, every single director of which I've seen at least five films by maybe a somewhat arbitrary way from number one to number 700, from Rainer Werner Fassbinder to Neil Breen. <laughs> Poor Neil Breen. <laughs> Poor Neil Breen. And I'm looking forward to maybe discussing the way of ranking directors and how this list maybe isn't exactly my list of favorite directors if I would pull them from scratch. Mm, all right. Yeah, that should definitely be interesting. Um, so, so to get into that core question first, before we start diving into our ranking systems, it might be interesting to just hear from everyone about what they actually value in a director. Like, I mean, how do you decide, like regardless of ranking, regardless of putting directors up against each other one-on-one, what is it that makes a director a favorite for you? And for this, we can probably start with uh, you, Mathieu. Hi, everyone. This is a difficult question because I, I know how to answer the ranking thing, but I, I agree with what, uh, with what uh, Christoph said, that the ranking is not necessarily exactly reflective of how I feel. And so how, how do I know what, what makes a director a director I love? It's, it's really hard to say. <laughs> I guess I feel a personal connection to them to, through their work. And there are some directors that I respect a lot, right? And I, and I like a lot of their films. I guess the obvious example for me would be Stanley Kubrick, right? Obviously, he's made a lot of films I, I like a lot. But I wouldn't say I, I love him as a director. I guess I don't... I understand kind of what he's doing, but I, I, I don't feel that connection. So so I guess that's where I would go. And it's that, that connection, it, it, it's, it's often hard to know where it comes from and how it manifests itself. So, yeah, I don't have a, a neat answer, I suppose. Right, uh, Mathieu, though, there's some shots uh, fired against the forum here, I think, because Stanley Kubrick has won uh, seven of 11 uh, editions of the ICM Forum's favorite directors, poll. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess he benefits from the way we rank directors, which we, we are going to discuss, I think. All right, yeah, good. And uh, what about the use all? What is it that makes a director a favorite for you? Yeah, this is probably a good point for me to chime in because I am somebody who has Kubrick at the top of the director's list, but that's because not so much because he's got so many films that I like, but just because of the consistency. And the consistency is definitely the number one thing that I take into account when ranking directors. It's got nothing to do for me in terms of how many favorites I have of theirs or I'm how many films I've seen from them that are favourites, or how many films aren't favourites. So, I mean, like, for example, I've got three directors in my all-time top 100 directors who've got no films in my top 800. They're just directors who I've seen at least six films from, and they're just consistently great films. So they don't have to be all-time favourites for me to really like the directing style. And conversely, I get to give at least one director who's got three films in my all-time top 100, but I don't consider him to be one of the 100 best directors of all time because he's a bit less consistent beyond those three films. So for me, it's all about consistency, and I've got no maths behind it. I mean, I could put a system in place, but when I started off, I think with ranked directors, it was a very small list of around 50, and it's got up to 426 now, but that's built up slowly over time. So it was actually very easy for me to gradually slot directors in place because I guess I started off when I was ranking them with just a very small number. Well, that's interesting, the consistency. I guess people are consistently awful, don't get that benefit. 
What, what is that consistency? Is it just consistently great films or, or consistently good films? I guess a bit of both, depending in terms of where they'll place in my list. So somebody who's got, yeah, consistently good films, but not like all masterpieces, like James Cameron's the example I was thinking of, who's got three films in my top 100, the first two Terminators and Aliens. But his other films aren't really quite up there. But then again, Titanic's much better than people say. True Lies is a lot of fun. The Abyss was okay. So he's made consistently good films at least. So he's somewhere in the top 200 of my directors, just not quite in the top 100 section. In order to be in the top 100, I'd need to be consistently really great films. Like I've seen and really liked everything that I've seen from Xavier Dolan and from Alejandro Hodorowsky. But I haven't got any films in my top 800 films, but they're all consistent like great films. So they're top 100 directors for me. So I, I guess it varies a little bit. But for me, the consistency needs to be there for them to sort of be ranked in the top half of my list. Do you go by average rating at all? Or, or is it just like a feeling you have about their general consistency? It's just general feeling. Okay, okay. Like I've said before, there's there's no maths involved. Mm. I mean, I started off with 50 names. I've slowly added on more over the years because it would have been about 15 years ago, maybe longer, definitely in the IMDb days. I started off with a small number of names and it's got more and more over time. And then the fun thing is after I watch a film, it can significantly change director's rating. But again, that's just basically uh, done like by feel. So, you know, you get somebody like Oliver Stone and I saw Natural Born Killers, and I was so disgusted by that that I actually, I think, dropped in about 50 places in my director's list. <laughs> one single film? <laughs> yeah, well, one Ooh. single film. Because, you know, I love JFK, I love Platoon, uh, I like Talk Radio and a few others from him, and then it's filmed mm. Natural Born Killers, and I'm like, oh, my God, or whatever. You know, he completely, like, fell out of my top 50 directors just based on that. So a lot of it's based on feel, but for me, it's the only logical way to do it especially when you consider the director isn't the only unifying vision that's driving a film and moving from feeling to i suppose matt because christoph told us ahead of this that he wanted to create a kind of perfect mathematical system of ranking directors even if they may be slightly different from his actual favorites so uh, christoph why don't you tell us a little bit of what makes a director a favorite for you and then maybe explain how you rank them as well well, as I said, my favorite directors aren't necessarily exactly identical to how my list is looking. What makes a director a favorite of mine is something actually hard to describe. Uh, I think when Saul speaks about consistency, I hear what he is saying. I think something may be similar. I, I like my directors to have a distinct vision or a recognizable handwriting, like a body of work that feels cohesive and an ability to explore different subject matters while still remaining recognizable as the work of the same artist. It also helps if the director has an interest in subjects that I find personally interesting, like if he's working in genres that I like or stays away from genres that I'm not appreciate that much, like I'm not the world's biggest fan of westerns or war movies so directors who mainly work in those genres will have a harder time of making me a fan of them i define my favorite directors by what i like of them and by the best work and i'm more likely to excuse a misfire as something that doesn't work by a director who's taking risks and failing at what he does at least if he's failing in an interesting way or if she's failing in an interesting way someone who aims and misses 
is probably more likely to interest me than someone who doesn't. I also, I'm not sure if that's particular to me, but I tend to appreciate directors more who have more of an input in their own films as they are also writing their own films. Many of my favorite directors also are writing most, if not all, of their own films. And this is also sort of reflected in my director's league list, where I think Alfred Hitchcock is the only one in the top 10 who isn't writing at least most of the films he's also directing. Now, the director's league that I made goes back to an idea that I had when I joined Letterboxd, because I saw other people having a director's league, and I saw it and I thought, oh, I want to have one of those as well. And just making a list from scratch and seeing where to put them, it's a very subjective thing. And it's something where I found it impossible to make a list today, where tomorrow I'm still of the same opinion that the person I put in number 135 is better than the person I put in number 136. So I chose to use the rankings that I gave to the individual films they made as a starting point. And so I experimented with average ratings and I looked how directors are falling then maybe. And I soon realized that this basically gives an unfair disadvantage to the directors I love the most. A director who I'm really intrigued by, who I'm loving, who I want to watch every single film that they made, who I want to watch their early films when we're still trying to find their voice, where I watch maybe the things that aren't as beloved, the things where they tried something different and probably didn't work out, and who might be getting a lower rating from me maybe something only three stars, two stars, or even lower, they are dragging the average down. And so chances are the more films I'm seeking out from a director and the more I'm diving into their more obscure work, the more likely it is that I'm rating something lower, dragging the average down. At one point, I decided to finally make a cut. And I just decided, since what intrigues me most about a director are his high points and are the things where it's really great. I decided to make a cut at 10 films. So I used as the basis for this list the average rating I gave to the 10 films of them I liked the most. If I have seen more than 10 films of them. If I've seen between 5 and 10 films, I've used the average rating of those. And if I've seen more than 10 films, only the average rating of the top 10 films, which leads to bad films or subpar films aren't dragging down the average. And I sort of liked where this thing fell. There's still some directors that by this method are ranking higher than I would probably place them. I think, for example, Michael Apted is ranked absurdly high on the list solely on the strength of the Up documentaries, which are all individual films which I tend to rate very highly. Jean-Luc Godard is higher on the list than I would probably place him Clint Eastwood is high on the list and I would probably place him because both have several films that I appreciate a lot, even if there are probably even more films in their filmography that I don't like as much. But as a general rule, I'm quite happy with how it turns out. And I think it's basically quite reflective of how I think of these directors, where they are all standing on this list. I find it hard to rank directors individually. Even if I look at my top 10, most of these directors, I would find it hard to put them anywhere between the number three spot and the number eight spot, they could change regularly. The one thing I'm very certain about myself is that my favorite director of all time is Rainer Werner Fassbinder. And so my main rule was, if I come up with a system and Fassbinder is not in number one spot, it's the wrong system to reflect my taste. <laughs>
Uh, and so when at the end of this entire thing, Fassbinder actually ended up on the number one spot, I realized, okay, this is a good system, at least a good system for me. And so I stuck with it, even although it has its flaws. That's a very interesting setup. Um, I, I do wonder, though, because you said that you obviously want to not punish directors for whom you're so interested in that you seek out their older films. What about uh, directors who have very small filmographies, like, say, Andrei Tarkovsky, who has, you know, those eight key features, but then he also has, you know, early student films, that one documentary he did. Like, I think that's 11 in total at, at the end of the day. So then obviously you would get some of those older, lesser works in there. Like, How would you account for that? Well, first of all, a confession I have to make. Tarkovsky might not be the greatest example because I'm not the world's biggest fan of Tarkovsky. He's a director I appreciate, but I'm not fully in love with most of his films, which is why he's ranking more in the midsection. I, I couldn't even tell you. It could be somewhere in the 200s even of the list. I'd have a look it up. As I said, the system has its flaws. And one of the main flaws is that especially directors uh, with eight, nine, ten films are having a really hard time and are probably having a disadvantage here. What I realized recently, for example, when I watched Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which was the 11th film from him overall I watched, I rated it four stars, I think. And I don't remember which film dropped out of the top 10, but it was something I really hated a lot and was maybe only a star and a half, uh, something like that. And just with this one film, Guillermo del Toro suddenly rose by almost 200 places in the list. He really shot up. So this list does give indeed an unfair disadvantage to directors with this 8, 9, 10 range. On the other hand, it might give an advantage to directors who have only five films, because five films is, so, is where I drew the line with at least five films. Uh, so it's possible with few films or maybe directors where who only have a few films that are generally available and their more obscure films are hard to come by. Gives them an advantage that with few films that I'm rating high, that they suddenly end up in the top 100. I have a few directors in my league which are in a top 100 uh, with only five films or six. Samira Mahmalbaf, the Iranian director who only has five films and hasn't made a film in way too many years, is someone that comes to my immediately. She's in my top, top 100. This is the a flaw of the system. Also, this is one of the reasons why I'm saying that this director's league would probably not be identical to a favorite list, uh, but it's basically the best compromise that I personally could come up with to reflect the broad outlines of my taste. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess if you ever were to make a favorite list, you could uh, use this as a starting point and then just tweak things around a little. And it will be also be interesting to hear like you and Saul discuss later because it's uh, essentially consistency versus a potentially very small, small outline of 10 out of 50 films. So I can't wait to get into that. Uh, for me, I think I might be the closest to mature in terms of how I decide who my favorite directors are and how a director becomes a favorite. It's usually a strong connection, I feel, to their work, a kind of excitement level I have. So I, I usually when I get into a director, I measure how much I love them by how excited and eager I am to seek out their next film. 
course, how much I, I love their films as well, but also just how much I love their impact. And I do try to look at how much influence they might have had in the work. I'm definitely more drawn to directors with their own voice and who stand out a little bit because they tend to get my excitement levels up a little bit more uh, as well. But when it comes to ranking them, I think I might just be mixing several things together. So Saul mentioned consistency. So that is a factor for me, especially in their prime. So I'm very forgiving. I can even completely ignore, say, an early student film, some TV film they did, uh, perhaps thought they did on the side but didn't take that seriously. I, I try to look at how much creative control they had over it, how, how much they cared about it. Like, was there a recession? Is it, you know, all of the Japanese directors in the 70s who were forced to make exploitation films or be out of work? Or, say, uh, Francis Ford Coppola after his uh, studio got bankrupt? I tend to make exceptions for directors kind of forced to do lesser films. I tend to make exceptions for directors who are still finding their voice, like, uh, say, Kenji Michiguchi, who I think made 60, 70 films before he felt like he had matured as an, uh, as an artist. Then it's just a general excitement level, a general number of favorites, a general balance and consistency in their work, and then I just put my feelings up against each other. So it's a very different system from Christoph. It's similar to Soul in going on all emotion, but also a slightly different metrics. And since you're our guest, Christoph, and I think Soul and you uh, will clash a little bit, it, it might be interesting to just dive into your system and the family tree it uh, belongs to, which is the average rating and just break down the system and maybe dissect it, critique it, offend you, who knows? But to any listeners out there who kind of want to create their list of favorite directors for the first time, the average rating is probably one of the easiest in the world. There are, there are websites that literally does it for you, like uh, Critiker. You can just immediately get a, a ranked view, and then if you want to, you can rearrange it later. It, or it can be this work of utter toil like Christopher has set up with his own rules. You can create your own weighting systems instead of just going by the, the top 10. There's so much you can do with the average uh, rating. But uh, since Saul is the one who may be the least inclined to, shall we say, ignore failure. So what's your take on Christoph's uh, system? I think it's a very interesting system. And it's something which maybe after the podcast I'll try playing around with. Yeah, I was saying in chat, though, it's not quite true because I don't love Barry Lyndon as much as most. However, I did say, you know, I just took the top 10 films and had the average of that Kubrick's average would probably be 10. Well, it wouldn't be. It would be like 9.8 or 9.7 or something. But it would still be very high up there. Uh, I think it's interesting having a, a cutoff point, although, like you said, it does give an advantage to eight or nine. So that's where if I was going to adopt such a system, I'd probably have to put like a self, a fail safe in place or whatever, to sort of balance that out. So uh, I don't like getting too technical on it. So it's not something that I would ever do uh, to submit like a forum list of favorite directors. But I can definitely see the attraction there, especially because when he registered on Letterboxd, he'd been watching films for close to two decades, if not longer, whereas my list when I first started off was, was only about 50 names going back 15 or 20 years ago or whatever, so it was much easier for me to put together. So 
I'd say, yeah, if I was starting off with several hundred directors, I'd say a mathematical system would definitely make sense. And here's one would be a very interesting one to try. But if somebody started off his list way back in the day, I am kind of happy with what I've got in place at the moment. Chris has also said that I should mention because he was talking about the fact of trying to ignore early directors' work, and that made me think about it. Because when I saw Fear and Desire, I actually quite liked it. I liked it more than Killer's Kiss, so they didn't really drop Kubrick in my list or couldn't really easy. It's pretty much a solid number one. However, when I did see Too Much Johnson, they did actually did it drop Orson Welles maybe a spot or two down my list, which seems really unfair. It is, at least my opinion. So it wasn't it ever intended to be screened the way that we're seeing it. So it seems a little bit unfair on that point, but uh, I do find that consistency for me is the one thing that I value the most about a director. And I guess what I found about it, find out about directors who I'm big fans of, I'm thinking of somebody like Cronenberg, I don't love all his films at first or some of his films that I didn't get at first, but after seeing more of his films and liking them more, I've been going back and re-watching his earlier films and those are going up in my estimation. So the consistency is there, but it's just like something that I noticed maybe on my first viewing of the films. This kind of brings to mind, to me, an issue that is, uh, how do we deal with stuff like shorts and TV series and, you know, st stuff that's not as straightforward to rank or like even miniseries. If you're doing like an average rating, do you give a rating to each episode or to the whole thing? You know, stuff like that. Because there are some directors, right? Like Buster Keaton, you can't really act as if the shorts didn't matter, for example. Anyway, I am actually pretty close, I guess, philosophically to what Christoph is doing. But I have a much cruder system. And in, in fact, I'm kind of hoping for this episode to give me ideas, and it has already, uh, to kind of better it, because it's 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 quite imperfect. But I definitely, I guess I'm the most extreme in the sense of not caring about the failures, in that my system literally does not take into account films that I don't like. I guess it doesn't to break ties between filmmakers, but... Other than that, I just assign points uh, depending on my rating. And so the ranking ends up being just which directors made the most films I love. That's the only thing really that comes into it. And then I've got an average rating system, which uh, uh, to, to kind of break ties. And I agree with Christoph that there's a real issue with directors you love. You explore their filmographies and inevitably you see films that are just not great. I mean... Alfred Hitchcock was the example for me, I guess, because I've seen a lot fewer films than, than you guys. As I explored his filmography, I realized, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of mediocre or okay films in there that are inevitably going to drop his ratings. And I kind of like the idea of picking a number like 10 or, or whatever works for you and just going off that. I, th I think that's not a, a bad idea. I guess we should discuss what we do with shorts and stuff like that. I, I guess I don't have an easy solution, so I'm ready to listen to what yours are. Before that, I just want to attack Saul a little bit on dropping uh, Wells due to Too Much Johnson. For, the, for those who don't know, Too Much Johnson is technically Orson Welles' debut film. It wasn't really Citizen Kane, though it kinda is. This was a film he made to be part of a stage play, so it was meant to be a stage play and these clips were meant to be shown. He was missing some rights, so he wasn't able to stage it, and then years and years and years later, the clips themselves were cut together. And it wasn't even intended to be a proper film, comparable to, say, a multimedia exhibit, in a way. And the idea that something that wasn't even intended to be a film or exist on its own is going to drop a director just feels unfair. I mean, if anything, for me, 
seeing too much Johnson, which I thought had a lot of quality in it. It, it actually worked when cut together relatively uh, well, even though it's not a great film <laughs> uh, by a long shot. So, so yeah, if anything, this is a little bit of what uh, Christoph and some other people mentioned too, that you can appreciate a director for misfires, experiments you don't love. And this, this was definitely an example for me where I, I, if anything, gained a little bit of appreciation for Wells. Well, I haven't seen too much Johnson, but I have to give props to Saul for actually doing this because his list is really very subjective. And if you're going full subjective on the list, then I really appreciate that Saul is really going in on his biases here because I can only assume that bias is quite important in this way of dropping Orson Welles after too much Johnson. I guess I don't, I don't get worrying about bias at all. I mean, it's, it's a personal list, isn't it? Uh, by the way, Christoph, why why do you call it a director's league? I, I guess I don't understand the difference with just a list. I think that the name director's league didn't come from me. I saw other people on Letterbox call theirs a director's league. League also basically implies a point system behind it, which sort of reflects the, let's say, mathematical basis it has, the assumed mantle of being objective, even although the objective thing it is based on are purely subjective ratings. Yeah, exactly. And because I don't feel 100% comfortable calling this my list of favorite directors of all time, just because, as I said, some people are higher than I thought they should be, and some people are probably a bit lower than they should be, calling it a league and therefore reflecting the point system behind it feels appropriate to me. I should mention, by the way, I like your point about going into your system, right? And going, well, I need Fassbender to be number one. I had a similar thing where I have a top five, right? I don't know who is number one necessarily, but I have, I know what my top five is. And so I kind of tailored the system so that I would make sure that these five would be the top five, right? So yeah, I, I think, I think bias is, is inherent to the exercise anyway, right? It, it's just meant to reflect in some way maybe not a perfect way, a practical way, I suppose. It, it is meant to reflect very subjective by definition or taste. It certainly should that. It's in a way by basing it on average, it's pretending to be fair, but it really all, it, no matter how you're compiling it, it will always go down to subjective taste. And I mean, that's, that's, that's what makes it interesting. I love looking at these lists, not because I want to see my favorites there or because I want to see the directors I expect to be on lists. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at lists like that to get a feel for the personal tastes of whoever compiled it and to get an idea what they like and what they don't like. And that, that's what interests me about looking at other people's lists. So to go back to the question from a couple of minutes ago, which I think Mature put out about what to do with short films, for me, I exclude them when I'm considering a director's ranking, but that's just a personal thing because I don't rate short films. I mean, I check short films and I check movies so I could check them off, but I don't assign a numerical value to them because I just have always found it incredibly hard to use the same system for feature films to rank short films, especially ones which are only one or two minutes long. I just can't find any way in myself to give a numerical rating. So since I don't actually rate short films, I don't include them in my considerations of a director ranks and same goes for TV episodes commercials, anything else they've done, all that I'm considering is feature-length films. 
But what if you think like Georges Méliès is one of your favorite directors? How do you reflect that? Because he only made shorts. I'm pretty sure. Well, maybe he made some features, but you know, directors like that who are maybe directors you actually love, but mostly worked in shorts. Well, any directors who mainly work in shorts, I uh, would just say I want to be able to put them in the same list. I mean, maybe I could at some point make a separate list of directors of short films, but I can't rate them alongside. I mean, I can't really think of any who really spring to mind at the moment, but obviously there'll be some out there I've seen quite a few shorts from, but I just, it's just, I'm not rating them and not ranking them. So there's just no way that I can actually put them aside a director who makes feature films, even though I might totally love their work. I mean, me loving a short film is very different to me than me watching a feature film and deciding to give it a 10 out of 10 on IMDb or five stars on Letterboxd. That for me is very different to ticking the favorite box after watching a short film and checking on iCheck movies. I don't really take uh, short films into account either, uh, unless it's a director who primarily makes short films. I don't think I have any directors I consider a favorite right now due to their short films, but say for Jan Swankmeyer, the short films do give him a push because he's someone who really did a lot of wonderful shorts. They're trippy, they're just as good as his feature work, and they're just they just give him that push up up my favorite list. Most of the directors I appreciate and follow and I've seen a lot of films from are not primarily short film filmmakers. And in general, and this is part of why I have a bit of a prejudice against short films, is that when big directors tend to do a short film, they don't always take it as seriously as they would a feature film. Uh, for, for various reasons, they might just want to experiment with something in particular. Uh, they're not really making it for a large audience. And the quality is often much lower than the work they're putting a lot of effort in. There, there's uh, exclusions to this rule, but uh, because of this, uh, I, I usually just ignore them altogether. Was the one that Scorsese did, uh, which was essentially an advert for a casino again, for instance. I'm not going to count that. And I'm certainly not going to count adverts uh, generally either. Well, for my system, I made a decision that basically everything that is on Letterboxd counts for my list. I personally love short films a lot. I think short film is an interesting art form and it requires a very unique kind of skill set to tell your story or to transport your vision within 10 minutes or less, or maybe 20 minutes or less. And I also found it interesting when compiling the list to see where people who mainly work in short films eventually fall. And so I have Chuck Jones and Jan Swankmeyer, they are ranking in my top 100. I got Spinja Fribczynski just barely outside the top 100. Don Hertzfeld is my top 100. So it was just interesting to see how directors who mainly work in the short form are falling within the list. As for directors who do sometimes short films on the side, if you're doing this cut of a 10, it doesn't really matter because the keys to reserve, I think that was the Martin Scorsese one you were talking about. It has a rating. It doesn't matter because Martin Scorsese has more than 10 films that I'm ranking above it. So it doesn't really matter whether I count it or not. So just using the short films and taking them into consideration as well mainly helps directors who are mainly working in short films. And I just found it interesting to see how they are ranking compared to the others. 
And for the people who don't uh, just go off the top 10 films, how do short or, or perhaps more adequately TV movies, miniseries, etc., how, how do they impact how we feel about the director? Well, how I feel, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a system for how I feel. But how I rank, uh, I guess, I do a very ad hoc system where if I feel like the shorts or the TV movie or even the TV episode, like, for example, Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson directed a couple of Breaking Bad episodes that are important to me. I mean, I think they're great episodes. Uh, then I do factor them in. I sometimes, like, count them as half the points they would normally be worth. But again, it's, it's just very improvised. But I, I guess I generally don't count them because I don't watch that many shorts anyway. But yeah, for, for some cases, I mean, Buster Keaton is the other obvious one where there are a lot of shorts and some really great ones. And so I count them basically at half points because I guess they're much shorter. So that feels fair to me. I include TV movies or made for TV films. I do include them in my estimation of a director. But again, that's because I'm going on field. And that's because I actually rate TV movies on IMDb. But I don't write miniseries, I don't write television episodes, I don't write short films, and I don't write music videos. So, so those things aren't taken into consideration. Although I am a big fan of music videos, I find them one of the most interesting art forms out there. And if I did include music videos in there, I somehow managed to rate them. I don't know how. Uh, there would be some directors like Michelle Gondry, who would like definitely float up towards the top there because he's done some incredible music videos. So it's something interesting, but it's not something I take into consideration. But I do take TV movies in, especially because with some TV movies, you get things like Jewel from Steven Spielberg. Some places it's released as a TV film, other places it was released cinematically. So for me, the basically the feature film format or the uh, standard feature-length film is what I'm considering when I'm trying to compare directors against other directors. So, you, you, for instance, not taking in Fassbinder's World in a Wire, your account when you're looking at Fassbinder. Oh, that's interesting. I'll need to check that because I think its listing on IMDb changed around a little bit. Like at one stage it was a miniseries, another stage it was listed as a Kelly movie or something. So I'm pretty sure I've got that right because I've actually got that in my top 500 films. So it must have at some point being listed as a feature film. So that, that one I have got rated, and I'd say, yeah, alongside Despair, that's uh, definitely one of the best things he's ever done. Chris is disappointed now because his attempt to create a war between Saul and Christoph has failed. <laughs> you need to create a drama. <laughs> but, but, I mean, Fassbinder is an interesting point just when you're talking about do you consider television movies TV miniseries? Because a considerable portion of them were made for TV, even if you couldn't see a difference between the films he made for TV and the films he made for the cinema. I mean, obviously, things that have multiple installments like Berlin Alexanderplatz or World on a Wire or Eight Hours Don't Make a Day, they were TV property, but also something like Marta, which looks very cinematic and doesn't feel in any way different to his other dramatic work in the 70s uh, was a TV work. And even I, although I've seen most of his films several times, would sometimes have to look up to be really sure if something, if one of his films was made for TV for the cinema. 
he treated them basically the same way. So at least in terms of him, it wouldn't make any logical difference to me to treat his TV films any differently than his cinematic work. On the other hand, there are cases where it could be debatable. Again, Saul mentioned Spielberg's duel. What I maybe would even throw in, Spielberg's duel was originally made as a TV movie, really theatrically somewhere. What about the Columbo episode that Spielberg did? It's also feature length. On the other hand, it's one episode of a long-running TV show. So you could wonder whether this Columbo episode, do you factor that in for Spielberg or not? Something else that I thought I might just mention, because it just sprung to mind, and it is actually interesting to consider that my all-time number two film of all time is Fanny and Alexander. I've actually only ever seen the five-hour version. So even though I've got it rated as a 10 on IMDb and five stars on Letterboxd, I've actually never seen the three-hour edit that those pages refer to so i've only actually seen the five hour version so that's a mini series and bergen will probably still be in my top 10 even without fanny alexander but definitely having that behind him definitely gives him a boost towards the middle of the top 10 rather than being towards the bottom of my top 10 directors this is not related to to the topic exactly but i, I do want to mention a funny thing about fanny alexander personally i've seen both versions but the film version I saw first, and I saw it on a DVD I got from a library, and it was the film version, so I saw it on a TV screen. And then later on, I saw it was playing in a theater, so I went to see it, and it was the TV version. So I think it kind of highlights the <laughs> absurdity <laughs> of some of those differences after a while, I guess. Whatever version you feel is the best version is the one you should count. But that's generally my philosophy of I'm not really interested in, in the failures or you know the weaker things. I could throw in Das Boot as well, which was, I think, originally made for the cinema, but there's also a very long TV edit. I and mean, there are at least two director's cut versions, at least two TV versions. There must be five or six different versions of Das Boot. And some of them are clearly meant to be seen as films, cinematic films. Some of them are, some of them are definitely TV miniseries. So it's very hard to categorize that. Basically, if you're making a difference between them, that you will always have cases where you must decide on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, to this day, I'm not sure which version I saw. I, I remember it, it was like five hours long, but I, there are like too many different versions to know. Five hours sounds like one of the TV miniseries edits. Yeah, yeah, but it's not like the longest one. So, so I mean, it's, yeah, it's not one of those those uh, theatrical cuts. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, I still don't really know which one to check <laughs> on ICM and stuff like that. Going back to Fassbender and TV movies, for me, usually I give extra credit when there are limitations uh, like that. Then you can still put out something that looks cinematic and is just utterly, utterly fantastic. I mean. Fear of Fear, for instance, is one of his best films in my mind, and that was made for TV. In some of these cases, you can tell that the budget is a little bit smaller. You can tell from the video print as, as well, but, but I think you're completely right. Uh, Fassbender took all of his projects uh, equally seriously, and his TV work is just so incredibly strong. I, I think it's interesting to balance it out with Bergman, who also worked a lot in TV, Looking past his two legendary miniseries, a lot of his TV work is generally not regarded that well. After he retired, and I'm using that in air quotes, he chose to only work in TV. So 
I think he made quite a lot of TV movies, but he kind of considered himself retired all the same. And those TV movies he made after are, at least in my opinion, nothing compared to what he did before. So that's an interesting discussion as well. So I guess if you'll allow me to, to kind of move on to something else, Chris, I was wondering what you guys think about what exactly we are ranking when we're ranking directors, right? Which is... It sounds like the way we all do it is we take how we rate the film in general and we apply that to the director, which is is how I, I do it as well. But it's very auteurist, I guess. It's, it's kind of looking at all oh, uh, the, the film as a whole is what the director made. And so I was wondering myself if I couldn't have a system where I would kind of try and evaluate what the director specifically is bringing because there are definitely films where I feel like the director is not necessarily bringing all that much and it's all more the actors or whatever, the music, a combination of other things. And I guess for, for, for simplicity's sake, it's just a lot simpler to use the general score. But I've especially went into this problem when I've tried to rank like cinematographers and, and other things. And I, and I started wondering, with, is it really fair <laughs> to rank directors kind of this, with this kind of more film-focused view? I guess I wonder what you guys think about that. Well, I can start by saying that I might be the exception here. That I mean, I, I for for a director to be a favorite of mine, they do have to have made great uh, some great films at the very least. But I, I don't just go by uh, how many great films I've seen from them or average rating or anything like that. I, I actually truly try to go by what they brought to the film and what they managed to do with very bad source material or just very limited tools. I guess it ties into author, author theory too, because I, I do look at what the director is contributing more than just the overall nature of the film, which means I, I might be disagreeing with author theory a, a little bit there. This in some cases, such as classic Hollywood, where it's very clear that the input of the director differs. I mean, I, I was looking at this earlier, and for instance, I don't have Mervyn Leroy among my favorite director, but he made some of my all-time favorite films, at least from classic Hollywood, like uh, I'm a Fugitive from a Shane Gang, he made Gold Diggers of 1933. Uh, like, these are just glorious-looking uh, films, but if you look at Gold Diggers, for instance, I mean, at least 50% of the power there is from the choreography of uh, Busby Berkeley. Like, how much of um, Fugitive from a Shane Gang is due to the, you know, the script, the producers, and, of course, the performance of uh, Paul Mooney. So it's uh, an interesting case, but don't just go by the films themselves. It actually, is, is your system not like math-based at all? Right? Do you, not, you don't have any formula? You just go, oh, I like this director better than this one? Yeah, pretty much. Ages ago, I used to go by some kind of average rating where I, where I guess I kind of created the mold, if you will, when I was uh, much younger. And then I, I think I took that basis to start to tweak things around, go by emotion. That list has changed so much over the years. But yes, I would say it's about a personal connection to them and just how much I just appreciate their work and their input and uh, their dial, I would say, uh, against each other. So yeah, there's no real math plausible. I do take films into account a little bit. Like if I feel like this is a film that you had more or less full control over or large control over, you had the tools necessary, 
story is good, etc. But you came short. Like you, you could not bring this to life better. That might actually drop you. And in some cases, it's actually possible for a great film to damage my opinion of a director a little bit because they could feel like, oh, this director should have been able to elevate this material far more than they did. Like this, this film is good because of the script and the acting. Like this director didn't really add any extra flavor or added very little flavor or even mess some things up. Like Chris. I don't go based on average ratings with directors. I do try and go on feel. And because of that, it's, I guess, a bit easier for me to not take the overall film into consideration. So if I'm looking at the directors towards the bottom of my 426 names, they aren't directors who've made films that I hated, but they're just directors who've made films that have got no visual flair or no style to them at all, or very few do at least. I mean, one of the names that stands out to me is Gordon Douglas, who made them, the classic giant ants film. But everything else that he's touched has just been just such boring, talky dramas. But even things that aren't boring or whatever, but it's still like dialogue heavy, I think of like James L. Brooks, who did Terms of Endearment and As Good As It Gets and the films like that. I mean, those are well-acted films and there's great dialogue in there, but just in terms of the vision and the visuals brought to it, just do nothing for me. But a lot of them towards the uh, bottom are, like Chris has said, those student directors, like there's director Richard Thorpe, made the uh, great 30s version of Night Must Fall, but everything else that he's done has just been a talky melodrama. And... It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, films that I hated for them to get rated low down. I'm thinking of somebody like Herschel Gordon-Lewis. He's actually towards the middle of my list. I mean, he's in the second half, but he's towards the middle of the list. Even though his films have got not-so-great performances and some really clunky dialogues, he actually has got a bit of a visual thing going along there, especially with his gore effects in there. So for me, he's much more interested than somebody like Richard Thorpe or... James L. Brooks. I find him far more interesting and far more dynamic a filmmaker, even though I might rate his films lower than the films of James L. Brooks. Well, since my own list is based on the average ratings, I don't probably don't have to contribute as much to this part of the discussion, although I do break ties that happen by my subjective feelings. And I think uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, I generally tend to prefer directors anyway who are contributing more than just the direction are also writing the films. The question, what exactly does the director bring to the table that doesn't come from the script, isn't quite that important for my personal list. I think I mentioned Hitchcock is the only one in my top 10 who is not usually a writer of films, which is not quite true because I forgot Scorsese is also in my top 10. But both Hitchcock and Scorsese are also directors who seem to have very much a very distinct handwriting. Still, maybe the fact that I do prefer directors who are very much in control of their films beyond the directing themselves is maybe reflected in the fact that those directors tend to get higher ratings for the films from me. Maybe that is a reason why the directors who are workmanlike directors maybe aren't in the very highest echelon of my list. It is interesting thinking about which directors wrote their films or wrote most of their films because looking at my top 10, most of them are directors who take writing credit also. But somebody who particularly strikes me who's in my top 10 is Sidney Lumet. 
And throughout his films, you've got these constant running motifs, especially with claustrophobic environments and single settings. I could definitely feel when I'm watching a Sidney Lumet film, even though he didn't write most of his films, although he did get an Oscar nomination, I believe, for writing Prince of the City, which is one of his very best films. But in general, like Martin Scorsese, somebody only wrote a few of his films rather than the majority of them. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll completely agree with that. And I think there are directors who don't write their own films that still have really clear and obvious voices. To move on to, I think it's your, just, um, Mathieu, number of favorites rather than the actual average. So just to, to elaborate, it's not strictly speaking number of favorites, but it's it's cl- kind of close to it. It's basically, then my rank, I rate a 10 out of 10, right, is worth five points. A nine out of 10 is worth three points. An eight out of 10 is worth, is worth two points. And seven out of 10 is worth one point. So anything that's below that is just not taken into account. And so it kind of functions similarly to number of favorites, but it's less restrictive. Right? It, it, le- it leaves more room yeah, okay. for filmmakers who make a lot of films I like, even though maybe mm. they don't have made many films I love. That's a really interesting system, actually. And now we're getting into full-on maths <laughs> as well. So to possibly critique this system a little bit, and then feel free to throw in the gauntlets so we can get a little bit more drama. Would you then say that opposite of soul, like consistency doesn't matter at all? Like if a director made, uh, say, 50 films, like three, four of them are favorites, then there's a lot of good movies, but say 25 or well over half of those films are mediocre or worse, that would have zero impact on your assessment of them whatsoever. Yeah, I truly don't care. I mean, I don't have to watch those films. And if I watch them once and think they're crap, I don't have to think about them ever again. Yeah, I I don't know why everyone cares about consistency so much. I don't know, like, you don't look at... If Da Vinci made a bunch of crappy paintings, it doesn't change, you know, the great things he made or, you know, pick whatever art form you want. I guess it only matters when you're choosing what to see in a cinema or I guess when you're choosing what to see, it's coming out and you haven't heard much about it and all you know is the name of the director, then yes, okay, if a, if a director is very inconsistent, it's going to affect how likely I am to see his film. But when I'm ranking directors, I'm looking at what have they done, <laughs> what have they done for me, I guess, <laughs> lately or not. So yeah, I, I just don't, don't care about um, anything that I don't like. I, I just don't care about it. I just don't like to think about things I don't like. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to turn that around and you say like, you care about what they did for you, but what about what they did to you, Mathieu? <laughs> well, I guess I, I guess I put it on myself. I I, I did it to myself. <laughs> I chose to watch something that <laughs> did not work out. I guess I should say it doesn't not matter at all in the way I I rank. In that the mention the system I mentioned it has a lot of ties. So I do an average rating thing where I try to compensate the directors who have seen a lot of films by. And so in that way, it does come into play to, to differentiate uh, between directors. But that's, that's it. Well, as my list is based on averages, it helps to have a lot of favorite films to just pull the average high. But it also awards consistency by directors who maybe I like a lot, but don't have that number of films that I really admire greatly. 
I just checked. I have two directors in my top 100 who have no film rated higher than four, but on the other side have nine, at least nine or 10 films with a four-star rating. So who are incredibly consistent at, at really making me like the films a lot, even if there maybe is the one thing that, that's missing. And these two directors are Agnes Varda and Tsai Ming Liang, who are both ranking my top 100. These are both directors that really deserve their top 100 spots, I would say. Maybe just purely basing it on favorite films and basing it on directors who make films that are really are making films, uh, five-star movies, takes a bit away of a chance for directors who are consistently very, very, very good and make films I like very, very, very much. Having a system that isn't only relying on which films are your favorite is sort of helping spotlighting these kinds of directors. It's funny you mention Agnès Varda because she's in the same kind of in the same situation for me. She made a lot of films I like and only one I would say I really love. And so if I didn't take into account uh, seven out of 10 movies for me, so, so just films I, I think are good, she would not be in my list. And, and similarly, right, because I kind of go a bit lower, it, it does, she makes my list and I think I'm happy with that because I, I do, I do like her a lot. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, uh, Varda is actually my number three of all time, and I have a lot of movies I really, really love. <laughs> but on the topics, you both had some number of favorites, number of films you like. It's interesting how your system is both a little bit similar and different, because for, for, for you, Christoph, I mean, the number of films you like or love doesn't really matter after I hit that 10 points. So let's say you have one of those directors who maybe have 20 or 30 films you consider great those 20 films below your top 10 are not going to affect any results at all. While for uh, Mathieu, those films could shoot that director into their, you know, his top 10 or even his favorite spot. Those films below the top 10 can still serve as a tiebreaker. They, they will not affect the general placement. They, they cannot make a difference whether I have someone in, let's say, the 70s or the 120s of my list. They can make a difference a few places up or down when the top 10 have the same average rating because I made a crazy detailed version of how I'm breaking ties. But you're right, at a certain point, if there's a director that I'm really like or the director I really love and the top 10 define the general place where they are on the list, the films below the top 10 don't make that much of a difference. Just on the subject of directors and number of favorites, as I've said before, for me, a lot of it's going for feels. I've got four directors that I could count on my top 100 directors that have got no films in my top 860 or so along my favorites list is at the moment. What's kind of interesting is I actually have got a director in my top 15 who's got only one film on my list, and it's actually only just inside the top 500. So that's Shion Sono. Everything that I've seen from him has been quite amazing. None of it's really been a top-level favourite for me, except for Love Exposure, which is the one film on my list. But I've thoroughly liked everything else I've seen from him. He's got such great visual flair, which is why he's a top 15 director for me, even with only one film on my list and only halfway through the list. The only thing about Shion Sono is he's actually done tons and tons and tons of films, and I'm only judging it based on the very few that I've seen which I guess brings up another point when you think about other directors with big filmographies, especially Takeshi Mike, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who's got over 100 films. Can we actually properly judge a filmmaker 
who's made several dozen films, if we've only seen a small chunk of it, like I have with Shion Sono. This is something that won't really affect Mathieu and Christoph that much because those lesser films don't really exist. For me, it's a really interesting question because I do actually take a sense of their overall career into account. I don't just look at the favorites. I look at the failures. I look at what, why they failed. I looked at what they brought to each film and how, like I said earlier, how much agency they had over each film, or at least I think they had, and that's obviously a big gray area. You never really know. So for directors like that, it, it's just really difficult to say because with Mike, he has dropped quite far down my list over the years. And that's in large part just based on my lack of interest in his new films. So part of my appreciation for a director is how much excitement they conjure up, up in me. And I do take, say, the prime into account. So uh, as one example, this is not a director with a massive filmography. I think he's only made around 20-something. But Masaki Kobayashi, he's one of those directors who took a very long time to kind of get into his stride. He, he essentially worked in all of these melodramas in the 50s. These melodramas are, they're good, but they're nothing compared to what he would start doing in the late 50s. And then, you know, obviously the Human Condition trilogy came out, The Inheritance came out, Kaidan came out, and obviously Harakiri. And that's where he blossomed as a director. So I kind of look away a little bit from that previous work, a bit like with Kenji Michiguchi, where I kind of see it as before he became the director I love, before he developed that style. And possibly with Mike, uh, if at some point I start seeing more of his films, I might have, say, a drop-off point where I say, okay, now he kind of lost his magic touch a little bit. I'm going to focus on those films in his prime or, you know, he started going for the money. Those films are going to affect his overall place uh, with me, but it's variable. And I don't really know until I've seen that many of them. Like, I've skipped almost all of his films from the last decade. Like, I've seen very few. What I've seen, I haven't been that impressed by. And that will definitely hurt him. And then I'll have to see how I feel when I finally watch what like 30 40 50 films he's done in like it's at least 20 films he's done in the last decade like that's gonna have a big big impact for sure just at the risk of angering the japanese pronunciation police because i don't speak japanese uh, i think it's takashi Mike and not mike but I'm, I'm not sure yeah i'm not sure either i'm just going with Saul here so i'll blame him if it's if it's off apologies to the japanese uh, pronunciation <laughs> police it's... yeah yeah good solution <laughs> blame the australian oh thank you <laughs> I think, as has been mentioned before, with my system, large filmographies are directors from who have seen a small share of the filmography. Having seen only a small portion of the filmography doesn't really make much of the difference here. However, I also have a tendency to dig into the filmographies of directors I like, so I'm trying to get this problem out of the way if it's possible. In the case of Mike, I have to admit, he is on my list. I have seen only five of his films, and he's not really a director I love. He's fairly low on the list because it's just not the kind of film I'm interested in. And I've seen some of his better known and, let's say, major films. So he's just a director I'm really interested in diving into deeper. So I guess I'll have to say I'm maybe choosing to remain ignorant of 
the vast majority of his films, but I don't really expect this vast majority of his films to sway me to his side because at least the ones that I have seen are among the more popular ones in his filmography. Something else that has sprung to mind, although I don't actually have an answer to it necessarily, is how do you guys treat directors who've done co-productions? I mean, I guess for me, because I'm doing it based on feels rather than average ratings, I can look at the Toby Dammit's uh, segment, for example, in Spirits of the Dead. So I can look at segments that were done by directors. But then there's like co-director productions. You're not quite sure how much each director did. And then I guess you've got Powell and Pressburger, where, as everybody says, you know, Pressburger was more of the writer. But then Michael Powell is hiring my director's list because of Peeping Tom and because of that pretty much outclassing everything that the archers did together. So I'm just wondering how you guys feel about co-productions and whether actually also whether you've separated Joel and Ethan Cohen. Because I haven't, but Ethan Cohen should actually be higher for me than Joel Cohen now because I didn't really like Tragedy of Macbeth too much. So uh, how do you guys feel about co-productions? I think that's a difficult one. I'm trying to do those basically on the case-by-case basis. There are some where I, like Powell and Pressburger, I have them as one unit on my list and I don't have Michael Powell separately and I'm just lumping his films with them because the majority of them are co-production, even although Michael Powell has several films he made alone. Also, I got the Cohen brothers as one group so far and I got Kowski sisters as one group so far although Lana did the last Matrix movie by herself so it really becomes a question of at what point do let's say directed teams who are splitting or doing different things on the sidelines um, become individuals and I don't have an absolute answer for that it's really one where I'm deciding it in particular cases, I can't actually can't give from the top of my head an example where I decided to split filmographies. I the only ones I have in my mind is where I'm still lumping them together, even although one of the two of them has made films individually. Maybe what comes to mind are Disney directors, where some of the old Disney classics had several credited directors and who then made different films on their own. It's not one where I could say there is a general guideline that I am going by myself. Yes, so I don't do director teams at all. I just do them individually. So, for example, the Darden brothers have a list for each Darden brother, even though it's literally the exact same list. And, <laughs> I mean, it's it's pointless, but because if one day Jean-Luc decides to make a film alone, I mean, who am I to stop it? So like the Cohen brothers, for example, I do have two different lists. Uh, mm. And actually for the Cohen brothers, it gets complicated, right? Because there are a bunch of, um, bunch of films where only Joel is credited as a director, even though I think they would prefer it to be both of them anyway. So, so I do just go by IMDb. So I have Joel. He's in my top five. Actually, I, I love the Cohen brothers and Ethan is lower, but in practicality for most lists, it ends up being just the Cohen brothers. But, but in my personal files, basically, I do separate them. I do agree with Christoph that the Disney directors could be a big problem. Someone like Norman Ferguson or someone who is credited on a, a lot of these. Could he be in my list? I I don't think he could be based on the point system, but if he could, it would be kind of a problem, right? Because he's, he's not really the author. I mean, 
he's like one of seven directors on Fantasia. I love Fantasia, but does that mean he's one of my favorite directors? I don't have really a solution to really big omnibus films. I don't think it's a big problem for when it's only two directors, because like Lana and Lily Wachowski, they both have obviously directorial control over their films, right? So I think it's fine to attribute it to both of them equally. I think with some of these, it's very easy because if you have a director couple, they rarely break up or, you know, it will break up if one of them dies. Uh, so it, then you can kind of just keep going with the ranking you have, or in some cases, attribute it to one of them. Like I rank Michael Powell and I might note that you no, know, most of these were done with uh, Emery Pressburger, but I'm not going to rank Pressburger separately. And I don't recall if he directed any of his own. I, he might have, but I haven't seen them. So I, I essentially just go by Michael Powell's work uh, with Pressburger and his solo work because he, Essentially, that was a director-writer combo where Pressburg was primarily the writer, but they worked together throughout the production. There are, there are more difficult cases. There's one where they separated and still work together. Like, I have both John luc Godard and Anne-Marie Miwil in my list of favorites. Obviously, Godard is the more established director. He's my favorite director of, of all time as well. So uh, that, that's easy. Uh, Miwil only did five films of her own, and then I think like around 13 or so with Godard. I'm not, I'm not checking the stats right now. Uh, so obviously, the, the, that co-work co, uh, uh, <laughs> has a big impact. But then my favorite two films of first are not with Godard. So that, uh, that uh, helps it a, a little bit. But those can be complicated. I think the Cohen brothers will probably be the most difficult. I, I still rank them together. But let's say they never make a film together again. And they're not that old. So both of them might you know, continue directing films for the next two, even three decades theoretically if they never make a film together again they both make 10 15 films or or, or even just five six seven where they just become very distinct that 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 may be a bit of a problem for the statistician i mean there's also the interesting case of films in which change directors midstream gone with the wind is officially a victor fleming film but we have parts that were made by George Cukor and Sam Wood. Uh, and so the question is, how do you treat those films that change directors midstream? Do you only go by the ones that are credited? Or do you also give those who had significant input into the final product, but didn't get the official credit? That's also another one where I personally go by case-by-case basis. For example, I am counting Gone with the Wind not just for Fleming, but also for Cuker and for Wood, which also basically, especially in the case of Sam Wood, suddenly makes Gone with the Wind the best film Sam Wood ever made, which is kind of weird, I have to admit. The Wizard of Oz is another one. There are films where directors change midstream. Only one is credited, but it's fairly well known that much of the input was actually by someone else, where you really basically have to make, at least I'm personally making the calls on an individual basis, maybe more than one way to decide it would be the correct one. Yeah, that's a difficult question. I think one that instantly rung to mind was uh, The Last Days of Pompeii from 1959, which is officially credited to Mario Bonard, you know, a director most people probably haven't heard of or care about, but it was actually directed primarily by Sergio Leone. Bonard got sick on the first week and the rest of it was done by Leone. And uh, it's a terrible, terrible film. It's just utterly awful. (laughs) It's uh, it's this, you know, real, it's a Steve Reeves kind of uh, 
action film. It's badly set up. It's it's you know camp in all the worst ways. Somehow Fernando Ray is in it as well, but that, we, we can skip that. I I didn't really count that towards how I feel about Leone because essentially the script is set. All of the plans were already set. He's more he was the second unit director. He just took over and he directed it. So I, I'm not really gonna judge him for it but uh, it, it did and it was his first ever film uh, with any kind of responsibility like that it's certainly something to think about see but if you had my solution of ignoring bad films it would be much simpler and you could still be consistent and count it if somehow Sergio Leone had made a masterpiece in the same situation I mean because if he had mm. you would definitely count it it probably has a slight impact I mean if like the, the way I look at uh, directors, like I said, it's it's about what they're doing under the circumstances. I think that you know, just taking over a project like this as a completely inexperienced director who's only done second unit work, he finished it completely adequately within what was set out. So it just zeroes out. If he had, like Mario Bava, for instance, made several of these really weak couple of films as well and I, I, some of those I actually count as, as positive because you know the the way he shoots them there's a lot of really exciting action he manages to elevate some of the action in different ways with the camera work with the way he blocks actors even though the story the acting etc is the way way lackluster he manages to do something extra there now, in this case I, I just felt like okay he did what he could do under the circumstance if I thought this was even a decent film like okay second unit director steps up and makes a better film than with been otherwise it would probably even if i didn't like it it would probably have bumped up leona a, li a little bit for me but, but who knows it's, it's a little bit hard to speculate it's a question which i also find hard to answer and something which i'd also probably do on a case-by-case -case basis although you've used the example of leone replacing a director and sort of carrying on the material that you didn't have to begin off with and maybe we should include that but you know sometimes masterpieces do come out I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call Spartacus a masterpiece. I mean, it's an extremely good film, but I guess by Kubrick's standards, maybe it's a little bit lower. But, you know, that's one where he placed the director fairly early on in it. And even though it wasn't as mature that he was working with, he still managed to create a film that won the Golden Globe for Best Picture. And actually, speaking of Golden Globe wins for Best Picture, you've got Bohemian Rhapsody, in which Brian Singer was replaced, and that ended up winning the Golden Globe for Best Picture. But I'm going to have to look up that Leone. Maybe I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's definitely not recommended. No, I was just saying, you know, it would be a great way to drop out of my top 100 directors, uh, after which uh, Christoph mentioned something about he wants to admit it in the public, so that's fine. I can admit to the public that Sergio Leone is just not my cup of tea, and he might be on number 551 on my list of 700 directors. Stunned silence all around. Which is which is of how many again? Seven hundred. Oh yeah, that that that's pretty low. <laughs> it, mean... it, it it is, but I I don't care for the dollar trilogy. Once upon a time, the West looks good, has a great soundtrack. But if I could just look at still images from the film and listen to the soundtrack, I get the same experience that I get from watching the film. <laughs> so um, I I love Once Upon a Time in America. But that's really the only one of his films that I, I would say I really love. Just for fun, who are the directors ranked immediately above and under him, to get an idea? Okay, I have 548 to 555 are Jack Conway, Ruben Mamoulian, Daniel Mann, Sergio Leone, David Slade, Cameron Crowe, Robert Cannon, Billa August. 
Okay, so it's not it's not like yeah, that's not the worst company to be in. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's still yeah, I, I yeah, guess there are no really bad directors. I mean, to to get directors, I really loathe. You have to go, go to really maybe the bottom fifteen. Even there are directors that I don't really loathe. I just don't really care about them. I mean, my number seven hundred is Neil Breen, and I kind of love Neil Breen. He's just completely Ooh. inept as a filmmaker. <laughs> but but I but I but I enjoy his films maybe more than films by directors who are competent but just are competent it's also because you said like you said like a minimum to five films right so if you if you really hate a director you're likely to see five films by them probably not i mean just for example joshua logan is on 601 he's probably one of the most of the blandest directors of the studio era that has ever been and even he has almost 100 people behind him if i would draw up a list of directors i really don't care about joshua logan might actually make the top 10 just just for the general blandness of his films and if i had to watch right now either film by joshua logan or neil breen i would immediately go for a neil breen movie yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting uh, setup. I haven't even seen a single film by Neil Breen, so it's really hard to comment. But uh, I'm looking at his IMDb rating, so you don't uh, know what you're missing out on. Oh, it's, okay, it's, okay. Yeah, apparently, Neil Breen is an architect, but architect by training, and he is making films in which he's usually in some kind of savior role and reaching into the camera and destroying laptops and at one point in most of the films uh, walking around with his bare ass and it's, it's such an incredible mess he's he's completely inept but you but there's no self-awareness at all you get the idea that he probably thinks he's doing good films i recommend checking some of his films out is this like a saw scenario with the room where he's <laughs> he's just <laughs> Really not aware. I have a belief that we so at some point realized that he is appreciated by many forms in an ironic way, and I do not think that Neil Breen even has that awareness. I, I do. I really do believe that Neil Breen is taking himself very seriously, and that's that's uh, the moment these bad filmmakers become self-aware and suddenly try to repeat the things that have been loved but on in an ironic kind of way at that moment they usually tend to sort of lose it for me i, I think from this yeah we have a few things that came out of this episode we have two we have two very mathematical systems from uh, christoph and uh, mature that first time rankers might easily get in on then you just have the plain average rating as well as a decent starting point you have the emotional consistency of uh, your feelings towards a director's consistency from Saul, and then more assessment, excitement uh, look from myself. And our listeners have hopefully maybe been swayed one way or another, maybe changed their views in some way. Let us know in the ICM forum and the thread we set up for this, like if any of our arguments <laughs> made an impact of you, if you adopted any of our systems, or if you just you know, took some of our uh, tools in. Um, in terms of recommendations, it's very clear that we all have to seek out uh, Neil Bream. Maybe that's going to be a future podcast. <laughs> Who knows? Beyond that, everybody's heard about The Last Days of Pompeii, which may be Sergio Leone's 
unknown masterpiece. So you have a lot of watching to do, everyone. Thank you so much for listening and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.